Please be advised this story contains adult content and graphic language. Surprisingly, you met with your son's murderer, Daniel Wozniak, while he was waiting in jail before his trial? We spoke for a total of almost six hours. During that time, he had told me that actually he had planned to, uh, initially he had planned to kill his parents. Welcome back to Sleuth. We have Steve Hare, Samuel Hare's father, and Sam was one of Daniel Wozniak's murder victims. And we're very grateful to have you here today, Steve. Thank you. Good to be here. So I want our listeners to understand and appreciate how our relationship began. We met actually after the trial, officially. And I had been going on for years trying to find out the truth of what happened. The police were guarded as far as what they could tell me, obviously, because uh, they had to prepare for the trial as well as the uh, prosecutors. So they couldn't tell me much. But I found out enough of my own through interviews of my own, certain things. And then when you had introduced yourself to me, uh, you had mentioned something. And that's something told me that other people trusted you with that information. So I figured if those people trusted you with that information, I could trust you and share some of the information that I had received. And I believe what you're referring to is when I told you that I had seen the pictures and what those pictures reflected were what Daniel Wozniak did to your son. And once again, once I realized that those people entrusted you with showing you those pictures, and they were quite graphic. Trust me, I know. Then that was good enough for me. So from there, we really did share a journey together, I think. It really fortified um, the results we came up with and the work that we did when we were able to join forces and do it together. When you came along and when you told me what you had seen, and I said, okay, let's do a little collaboration on this. And all the stuff you had uncovered, Linda, and all the interviews you've done, showed me what a true investigative reporter should be. I've always believed, I'm right from the beginning, that there was more than just Dan Wozniak's involvement. Through Sam's friends, on quite a number of occasions, would fill me in on certain areas that just strengthened my belief that there were more people involved. Then when you and I had met and we started going over some notes that we had, we realized that this goes much deeper. And that began our collaboration as far as, hey, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's find out or try to find out the whole truth. And part of that truth is, in fact, looking into others involved in these crimes, looking into... Uh, accomplices of Dan's and and to try to find out, in fact, what their roles were, if any, and and the evidence to support that. And, and I think some of that focus has to do with Rachel Buffett, who was Daniel Wozniak's ex-fiance and, quite frankly, the person that he was allegedly committing these crimes for so that he could 
win favor with her and and take her on a beautiful honeymoon with your son's hard-earned savings. And so I think to focus in on her with a trial coming up very soon, charging her with three felony counts as an accessory, I think we learned a lot through police transcriptions that I was able to procure from a source, gave a real blueprint into her guilt. It's the lies, I always say, that led us to believe that she was guilty of a lot more than police were able to prove. It's the blueprint. It's the foundation. It's the whole building. Uh, those, The information that you had received, what they did is they strengthened my suspicions of her. Her influence. Oh, big time. I have said, actually, after the last two and a half years of of my time in on, on this investigation, that I, I truly believe that Daniel Wozniak wouldn't have committed these crimes if he had never met Rachel Buffett. And I will say that uh, Costa Mesa Police agreed with me on that on several occasions. I know that they tried to come up with all the evidence necessary so that the DA could go after her for murder charges or accomplice charges. But they just fell short. And that just confirmed my belief that, yeah, she's much more part of this story. I mean, at this point, you really had the access to Sam's friends who lived in Camden Martinique at the time. So you could talk to them. I know it's hearsay, but you certainly did speak to quite a few people to find out her nature and her relationship with Dan and how she was really the one in charge. She was the one in control. I mean, she, I I have a quick little story that I think really reflects their relationship and, and her power over him when they would get together with a bunch of neighbors, including your son, and they called it, I think, Taco Tuesday. And it was at uh, a neighbor's, a mutual friend, Dave Barnhart's. And when they'd get together for these parties, Rachel would like to exert her power over Dan by sort of telling other guys there, look, watch, I'll get him to kiss a guy, and I'll tell him if he doesn't, we're not going home together. And sure enough, she would... She would basically assert to him, unless you kiss that guy sitting next to you, I'm not going home with you. And that's what he do. And everybody laugh. And, and, and that just, that to me is so revealing. Well, I had learned that story from you, but I had heard of other stories, whereas uh, she was the one pulling the strings in that relationship. She was the one who, quote, wore the pants in that family. She was the boss. But once again, everything led to certainly Rachel being part of this. You were actually face-to-face with Rachel on Dr. Phil's stage for a national television audience. They were young, in love, and living the American dream of being actors in California. Rachel's claim to fame was playing Princess Ariel at Disneyland. Dan was well-known in the local Orange County theater scene. They were in the prime of their lives, engaged to be married, and just a week away from their beachside wedding. That is, until the cops called it off. On December 2012, I got a call from Dr. Phil Studios saying that they wanted to do a show on this. I said, no, I don't want to get involved. And they had told me, well, Rachel Buffett is going on there, basically to profess her innocence. So I said, sign me up. Two days later, we had a pre-interview, and then... 
Three days after that, the following Wednesday, we taped the show. Because of how much these people are hurting, and they think that I had anything to do with that, it's bringing up a lot of pain for me. And if I had not gone on that show, they would have had a show with her. Who was going to benefit from this, except Rachel? I'm finding out random different lies, jobs that he never had, people that he talked to on the telephone that never existed, a condo that he never owned, overdrawn bank accounts. I'm starting to question if I've ever known him. I absolutely feel like I was duped by Dan. So, of course, Rachel goes on, and I'm in the, they keep me in the green room there, and I'm watching, and she's saying, well, I didn't know Dan. I didn't know he was like this. I didn't know he was like that. She did know certain things. She knew the financial situation. And it situation. wasn't the truth, what it she wasn't, was What she was saying on Dr. Phil was it wasn't the truth. And then I did have the opportunity to confront her. If you're so innocent, reputations, whatever, it's hard on your business, I'm sorry. But... My son is dead. My son and, and his friend, his tutor, is, are, they're both dead. He was cut up into pieces. And you to come on here and, and go on the TV stations, poor me, that offends me. That offends me. And I'll just leave it at that. And Dr. Phil also confronts Rachel on some of her inconsistencies. Well, what I want to do is give you, Rachel, the opportunity to tell your side of this story. According to the DA, Rachel described a third party who came with Sam on the night they picked up Dan. Now, according to police, Dan admitted fabricating this third party. And it's my understanding that you didn't say you inferred that there was a third party, but that you told the authorities that you saw a third party. Is that not correct? I don't recall telling that specifically to them. She said, I saw Sam. I saw Sam coming down with another person on the day Sam was murdered. And he had correct. a black hat. And he had a black hat. Right. And then so that was something that police say, oh, that's the story that Dan came up with. But then he recanted that story when we eventually got him to confess. And he told us that was a made up person. And so one of the charges is that she said that to police. And the reason how she described that story on Dr. Phil was because of this coffee pot story. You have a wife, right? I do. A beautiful wife. Thank you. If your wife told you that she had just made a cup uh, or a pot of coffee and it was in the kitchen and then you didn't see it, but later on somehow it became really important whether or not it was there and a cop asked you um, what was in your kitchen, you say, oh, a spatula, a fork, and a pot of coffee. I trusted him and I trusted that what he said was true and especially before I thought it really mattered, I didn't question it. And then later on in questioning, when the police asked me, well, did you actually see him? And I said, well, no, no, I didn't. That sounded like a really rehearsed and coached response. She told the police that the man in the black hat did not live at the apartments. She didn't recognize him. Well, if you say somebody doesn't live at the apartments and you can't recognize him, implies that you saw him. You don't hear from anybody. It implies that you saw this person. That's an outright lie. I think that's a really important point. Let's talk about the weaknesses of that, which is that, unfortunately, 
normally there's a recording camera on the body of the Costa Mesa police wherever they go. And in this case, there was no recording. The other thing that unfortunately might be considered a problem is that when you look at the police report, the date that the police report was in fact completed and written up was a year later after this incident. So because there's such a lag in time, I'm just saying that it does lead people to have some reasonable doubt. The facts are the facts. If they're handed out the next day or they're handed out a year from that date, the facts state the way I look at it is she lied and she's being charged with that lie. The other basis for her felony charge is that she lied about Sam telling her before he left with Dan that Friday, that fateful Friday when he was murdered, when he... He was leaving Camden Martinique with Dan because Dan asked him to go help move some furniture in the attic of a theater up on the Los Alamitos military base. And she said that when Sam came down to leave with Dan, he kind of pulled her aside on on their deck and said, I'm having some issues because she said she saw him and he seemed forlorn and a little despondent. And he explained it by saying that he had these family issues. Here's what happened. Dan Wozniak was one of the uh, ways we helped catch Dan was when I spoke to Dan and Dan told me and this was a few days after I found the body he said Sam seemed nervous that day and I said what do you mean he said well he said he was having some issues women issues and he, and Dan Wozniak told me Sam said he had family problems That was the red flag that told me Dan Wozniak was part of something. I didn't know at the time Sam was dead. And so I knew Dan Wozniak was lying because Sam and I are best friends. We shared so much together. My goodness, he has a, that's how they identified his body. He had a huge heart with a rose on his chest that said mom and dad. So when Dan Wozniak told me Sam told him that he had family problems, I knew Wozniak was lying. When Rachel goes on and tells the police, Sam told her that he had family problems. I absolutely knew Rachel Buffett was lying because there were no problems. She got that because Dan and her concocted up that story. That puts her right in the mix. And Steve confronts Rachel on another falsehood for Dr. Phil's audience. Rachel had mentioned that Sam confided in her, well, it alluded to the fact that Sam was having family troubles. Anybody who knows Sam knows there were absolutely no family troubles. Dan said the same thing in his alibis, that Sam was having family problems. Sam wouldn't tell you anything on family problems, dear, because there were none. Mm -hmm. So your story absolutely coincides with your ex-fiancé's dance, which, as we know now, were fabricated. Explain that. It could be something as simple as he was having girl problems and just didn't want to tell me. We're not talking about girl problems. We're talking about family problems. I don't know why he would have said it. She's still trying to back Dan up. She's still going with it, right? She's still going with it. And she's going with something that never existed. She lied about the man in the black hat, She lied about the relationship that we had, Sammy and myself and Raquel had. And she also lied about other things. Do you believe she belongs in prison? Yes, I do. You're lying and you're covering it up. 
So now that we're focusing in on these felonies, in Rachel's case, she's been charged with accessory after the fact, which implies that she covered up the crime but didn't participate in the planning of the crime. What is the maximum time she faces if convicted? I was told the maximum time. There's different levels of felony after the fact. The maximum time Rachel will get is three years in prison. That's the max in California. In other states, it's 10 years. Some states, it's 13 years. But in California, it's three years. So our whole point here is it is both of our beliefs that those charges should have been accomplice charges or, in fact, murder charges. That's that's how we feel based on the knowledge that we've accumulated all over these years. But the DA just felt it wasn't enough. It, it, it was it, circumstantial at best, and he felt strongly that he had a better case for accessory. It's not what you and I believe. It's what the Costa Mesa police believed as well. That is correct. And if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And me. So that leads us to the third and final charge, which in my mind, it's the strongest charge that the DA has against Rachel Buffett. And that charge involves a gentleman by the name of Chris Williams. And he was the person that they had met through the nine cast. He was very friendly with one of their fellow cast members. And within weeks of knowing him, Daniel asked him for money which he often asked many people for money because they were being evicted. And Chris was willing to give them some money. He felt that it was a good gesture to pay it forward after all of these fellow thespians had come up with a charity concert for him because he had some upcoming surgeries and and he had quite a bit of money that came from that concert. So he offered to loan Dan and Rachel the money, but he wanted it back within a very finite period of time because he didn't know them very long and he was worried about getting his money back. So Chris told Dan a story. By the way, Dan told Chris he was a fellow paisan, which he was not. So he told Dan that there were these loan sharks that he got the money from. And if he didn't get that money back by Friday, they were going to come after him, Chris Williams. And that was a big concern. So Dan knew Friday was the deadline. And with that, Chris Williams shows up at their apartment wanting his money back. And Dan said he was going to try to get some of it back. And Chris saw Dan leave with your son. When Dan came back alone, he handed Chris the money and Chris offered to give them a 20 because they had no food money. And so he did that. And he said he soon wanted to leave there because the stress was so high between the two of them. And there was obviously a very negative energy going on there. And the reason why I think this charge for accessory is the strongest, when she was questioned by police, she told them that Dan most likely gave the money back to Sam or one of the loan sharks outside of the apartment. So she completely lied because she was there present when she saw Dan give Chris the money directly. That, to me, not only is the strongest charge, but quite frankly, for me, that says to me that she is an accomplice and was very much part of the planning of the murders. Because for her to say that, she had to have known Sam was dead. I'm in agreement with you regarding this is the strongest charge. Rachel Buffett on Friday saw Dan Wozniak give Chris Williams 
$400. He had just murdered Sam. Comes back and says, here, Chris, here's money. And there's $400. And according to the records, Chris says, here's $20. Hold on to $20. And Chris gives him the money. And then he takes off. And half an hour later, he gets a call from Rachel and says, by the way, you dropped $20. Why don't you come and pick it up? And essentially, that's what I, I've heard. That's on Friday, but May 21st. But Chris also said that every bone in his body told him not to go back there. That he said something was wrong because she saw me hand them a 20. I didn't drop a 20. I handed it to them for food. And he said to her, do you want me to come back because of the money issue? And she said, no, it's something else. I believe she was trying to lure him back, as do police, because she realized he was the only one that saw Dan leave with Sam. But that was just another indication to me that revealed that, A, she's capable of luring people, and B, she could have very easily been part of the plan if she was willing to make that call. Why else would she put the blame on Sam? Say, oh, Dan could have given the money to Sam. Because it falls in line with their whole story. They wanted Sam to be the man on the run. He had it out with Julie, and there was some kind of love triangle. He kills Julie. He's on the run. He had this past that once he was charged with murder, he's the perfect candidate for our new tale, our, you know, our new play. Correct. The night they arrested Dan for bank fraud because they still thought your son was the prime target, right? They couldn't find him. So they brought Dan in thinking he was hiding Sam or helping Sam. So he was at that point just being charged with bank fraud. That's the the same early morning when... You know, she's being walked to the car after they brought her in for questioning. And she said, oh, by the way, Detective Morales, did you look into Sam's past? It's all part of this story, this narrative that they came up with well before the murders, why Sam was going to be their target. I'll leave it at that. We certainly know that Dan was luring Julie to Sam's apartment on Sam's phone. Sam's phone was more archaic, a flip phone where Dan's was a more state-of-the-art phone. Not only that, he was luring Julie after he spoke to Rachel. After he came home after to he came be home. with Rachel. Prior to that, Dan was texting with Julie. He was posing as Sam, but it was light bantering. Absolutely. Had nothing to do about luring until after he came home. It went from just, like you say, friendly banter, how are you doing, what's going on, what's your day like, blah, 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 to where are you going to be, when can you be, when can you meet me? I'm in trouble. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. I need to talk to someone. No sex. When can I meet with you? Sure. The, the intensity shifted as soon as he came home, brought that money to Chris, and then was with Rachel. It's what police believe instigated the murder of Julie because they surmised that Rachel saw the text that Dan sent to Julie as Sam where he said, I'm with my neighbor Dan, we're moving furniture in the theater. So at that point, police feel that Rachel felt it was time to do something about Julie because he put himself as the last person with Sam. Correct. One of my interviews in this case was with a gentleman named Dave Barnhard, who was very close with Dan and Rachel at the time of the murders. And he shared with me that he, in fact, had 
a budding relationship with Julie Kibuishi and that they had actually consummated that relationship just two nights before the murders back in 2010. And I was told by several people that Rachel also had interests in Dave, would actually play with him and tease him, and and that she knew that Dave had a serious crush on her. Whether or not that relationship was consummated or not is still something I haven't been able to firmly verify. While Dave Barnhart did say to me that he did not consummate that relationship with Rachel, he confessed to a mutual friend, Ruben Minacho, that he did have an affair with her. I felt it was important to share that with Detective Michael Cohen, who was one of the lead detectives on the Wozniak murder case, because I wondered if maybe jealousy was a factor in Julie's murder, given what was written on the back of her sweater. Anytime you have a jealousy factor, when in the case with Rachel, she always thought that she would control men with her feminine wiles and that she was sort of the focus of any man's attention. And to find out that potentially she might not be the only girl that Dave Barnhart was was uh, entangled with mm-hmm. makes you kind of wonder if there was some form of jealousy because that has an element of rage to it. If that would ever play into the idea of what was written on the back of of Julie's sweater, all yours, fuck you. Um, is that a possibility? Yeah, I mean, it's a possibility that Rachel's, you know, pissed off and and has a uh, an anger towards uh, Julie, and and uh, this was a good way uh, in her and Daniel Wozniak's master plan. That you know, he he needs money, she needs money. Uh, they get rid of Sam, and they get rid of Julie, so that takes care of her and. Uh, it's a possibility, absolutely. I, I believe it could be. And for them, she was just like a prop in one of their plays. Another telling Rachel story involves Violet Randolph, who was married to John Randolph at the time. They, as a couple, were very close with Dan and Rachel, of, of all the people that came to Martinique. And when you had found Julie's body in your son's apartment that Saturday night, that weekend of the murders... I believe they all got together, right? They had called Dan and Rachel back from a cast party, and they all got together to basically discuss who has seen Sam last, where was he, who was he with. And Dan was changing stories in that meeting. He he was really inconsistent. And at one point, they kind of broke off and went back to the Randolph's apartment, and that's when Rachel said to Dan your stories are changing and it's messing up my story. Something along that line. That's what the Randolphs told me. I remember talking with you about that and uh, it was told in kind of a little bit stronger language that Rachel was telling Dan you're screwing put the other expletive uh, there up my story Dan be quiet. But you had mentioned that Dan and Rachel had gone over Jake and Dave's apartment when they were called in because they were talking about who was found in Sam's apartment. And that's when Dan was telling the guys 
he was changing the story there about what this guy looked like. About this man in the about black this, hat. Was he in a right? black hat? Was he in a white hat? What was he? And Ruben white? was there. Ruben Menacho Ruben was, was not there. there. Not, Ruben was not there that night. It was Jake, I believe, a couple of oh, other Jake people. Oh, Jake Sweat and the Randolphs Correct. and Dave and Barnhart. And uh, what I had heard they had told me was, Rachel said, we got to get out of here. We got to go. And they abruptly left. And Ashley was there. I believe Ashley so. was there, and she, she and the Randolphs told me that when Dan was messing up his stories, Rachel said, "We have to get out of here," and she pulled him out of the meeting, and and said, "We've got to go. We've got to go." Like she was panicking because she could hear his. He was screwing up the story, right? And then when she went back with just the Randolphs, that's when she said, "You're effing up my story, Dan. You've got to stop effing up her story." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. So that that's that's pretty big. Once big. again, it just solidifies my belief, and I'm sure others believe, that she's much more involved. And I share with Detective Cohen another noteworthy story involving Violet and Rachel. I just wanted to say, when you were talking about the call between Dan and Rachel while he was in jail, and uh. she's telling Dan that you know she ran into Tim, and he's got this evidence, and he's like, no baby, no baby, you can't show that. You can't do that. I'm That's dead right. if you do That's that. Right. And she's like, I have to because I'm on a recorded call and I have to look like I'm cooperating. I wanted to mention to you that I've spent quite a bit of time with a woman by the name of Violet Randolph, who happened to be in the car sitting next to her when that phone call was taking place. And the okay. reason why she was saying that on the phone to Dan was because Violet had threatened her and said, I am calling Jose Morales, Detective Morales, right now if you don't tell the police about this evidence before it gets destroyed by Tim. Because she was saying, I don't want to do it. I don't want to tell them. So I don't know Uh if you know that or not, but I thought it was important. Yeah, I do recall now that, yes, she was kind of forced to do it because of Violet. Yet during Dan Wozniak's trial, Prosecutor Matt Murphy told jurors that the cornucopia of evidence, as he put it, was a gift from Rachel Buffett. But it was actually Violet Randolph who was going to make sure that the authorities knew about this grab bag of evidence. And one of the questions I asked Detective Morales, who was one of the lead detectives in this case, What would have made the difference between charging Rachel with accessory after the fact versus an accomplice? He said that they would have had to have proven that she was part of the planning and that, for instance, she staked out the locations. Well, that's indeed what she did. We have eyewitness testimony that shows puts Rachel and Dan at the Liberty Theater, which was the scene of the crime of the murder of your son, puts them both at the Liberty Theater two nights before the murder. And I also spoke to the ranger of El Dorado Park. I had gone there two months after the murder, and he said that this couple, and he identified Dan, had stopped at that park prior to the murders as well. And that is where Dan told Costa Mesa police that he spread your son's body parts after leaving the Liberty Attic Theater where he had dismembered his body. And I and I have three witnesses that saw her at the theater. There was no reason for them to be at the theater. One of those witnesses, Stuart McDougall, told me that they were rehearsing a show that night for 
Rachel and Dan to show up at the theater that night, that Wednesday night before the murders, was there a specific reason for them to be there or was it a shock to everybody? It was a shock, a surprise to everyone. I, I, there's no, there was no reason for them to actually be there, no. They, they just turned up. Dan would turn up, you know, and then, but this, we hadn't seen him for a while. And uh, Dan, just, they just turned up. Do you suspect that there were drugs involved? With her, I would definitely suspect that. She was a nervous Nelly. I'm not kidding. She was. She looked strung up. Jeez. You know, what the hell was going on that night? You know, was, I, and again, I just put it down. I didn't know her. I just thought she was out of her head. And then I, I just stand and asked him, you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then he just brushed it off and went on. Steve, let's talk about your meeting with Dan one-on-one, three separate visits while he was sitting in county jail waiting for his trial to start. You actually made an effort to meet with him and he agreed to meet with you. I had absolutely nothing to lose. So I decided one day, let me go to the jail. We spoke for a total of almost six hours. During that time, he, he admitted it. He apologized. He had told me that actually he had planned to, um, initially he had planned to kill his parents. But he backed out from that. And then, of course, he... He told you that in a very he didn't bizarre tell me way, that. didn't he? He wrote it. Okay. He said, Sam, and, Sam was not my first target, was not initially my first target. And then I said, what do you mean? And he didn't want to say it. So he wrote, he carried a Bible with him with a little golf pencil. And he wrote in the Bible, my parents, meaning his parents were initially his first target. And Dan confesses the same to Rachel during one of their jailhouse calls. So, baby, why'd you leave your family then? I'm crazy. That's why you left them, because you're crazy. Because I hate confrontation. Because they required too much out of me and I couldn't deliver. And the main reason that I left them is I almost reached a point where I almost killed them. Did you almost reach a point where you killed me? No, never. I promise. You were my only light. Personally, I would have him chosen that. Then Sam would still, and Julie would still be alive. But he also spoke about other things. He spoke about Wesley. The, he spoke about the plan. He told me certain things. Not much about Rachel, but he did mention a few things about his brother, Tim, which I believe you'll want to discuss in later episodes. But once again, I wanted to go there and uh, find out as much information as I could, because like I have said, he was the only one who was going to give me the direct information. And I knew it was lies, but not all of them were lies. What I found out during my course of my investigation, speaking to Sam's uh, friends from and the Camdens and what have you, is that certain times Dan would tell the truth. Certain times he would lie. Those lies would be when it would benefit him. He told me when Wesley would take money out from the uh, ATMs. That's the young lad who took who had Sam's credit card. He told me who about... he solicited for his help in his scheme. He he sent Wesley on the mission to go in like a hat and glasses to camouflage his identity, but go to the ATM physically to get the money. He told me things like he told his brother not to look in the backpack, but his uh, uh, brother not only 
did that, but he took the money, the foreign money that was in Sam's, uh, he had mentioned it to me. So he, Dan was telling me He also me used things. Sam's card to try to get gas, right? Well, I also found out that Tim, his brother, not only went into the backpack and took the foreign money, which was actually worthless, but Tim actually went in and got Sam's ATM card and tries to use it to fill up his gas tank. This is from a, a, a person who said, meaning Tim, his brother, who told me that he, uh, he didn't even go into the backpack. So lying tends to run in the Wozniak family. Regardless, so I did speak to him during those times, and I was getting certain answers. He said he was upset with Wesley he for was using upset. the car? He was upset. Not when, He was upset with Wesley. This is what Dan told me. He said he got pissed off at Wesley for using Sam's car, driving Sam's car around. But it bothered me in the sense that is Wesley not as innocent as he, as he comes across? And then also that Dan gave him money or let him have money for drugs and things like that. I don't know how that played out. But I do know this. Dan told me certain things. Some of them proved out to be true. And some of them was just out-and-out BS. And Wesley did admit to me because I kept asking him, I don't understand. What did you do it for? I mean, I understand you trusted Dan and he was like an older brother to you. and But... Why did you do it? You knew, I mean, clearly you knew what you were doing was not on the up and up. And he did admit that one of those days he took out an extra 400 for himself. And uh, he told me that. So uh, it, that was clear. On the Saturday, he told Dan he couldn't do it. He did do it on that Saturday. So he did take an, an extra There hit. you go. There you go. But funny, it's, and I, I just wish the police had done a little bit something towards Wesley. The kid got off scot-free. Yeah. Do you feel when you had those conversations with Dan, did you get the sense, because so many people kept asking, why is he protecting her? Why is he not coming forward and ex and, and exposing her role in all of this? I mean, even that jailhouse snitch that spoke to Dan, you know, that for, uh, Fernando Perez says in the letter that Dan told him that Rachel knew and she said, go make us happy. Go do whatever you have to do. When he discussed the plan of killing Sam... Nobody could understand why Dan was protecting her. But to me... No, I'll let me answer that for you. I would love you. for you to answer the that. The reason why Dan didn't snitch, quote, on Rachel is because if he snitches on Rachel, they will expose Tim. That's what I believe, too. In fact, Tim said to me, if Rachel comes forward and says anything, that if he has to go down, so will she. I mean, he has said that he's pulled the wool over everyone's eyes, that he that he was able to dupe the FBI and the police. And, oh, that DA, what a great guy he is. I know. I've gone to the police to uh, push this and check on, on Tim and push for him to be charged with more. But it falls on deaf ears. With that case, for the Costa Mesa police and the DA's office, Tim's done. Tim is done, right? and now they're focusing on Rachel. Well, they made a deal with them. I mean, well, they made a deal with them because they wanted to make sure their capital case was going to be yeah. won, and they were worried that the defense attorney was going to talk about some kind of mental instability in his background. But a, a deal is premised on the fact that that person tells you the whole truth, and that and Tim Wozniak did not tell them the whole truth. He lied often, frequently, and for that, that negates any deal. That he was they awful. I was in court that day. I was in court every day along with you. But that day, I remember just 
he was babbling all over the place and nothing made sense. And he was inconsistent every other word out of his mouth. And he told me later that he specifically drank a fifth of Jack. He wanted to come in there trashed so that he was the most ineffective witness they ever saw. And even with that, he still got away with everything because it worked. It, it worked. And I have been in the room when I've heard Matt Murphy characterize Tim Wozniak as just a hapless fool who was another Daniel Wozniak victim, like Sam Hare and Julie Kibuishi. Well, there are so many questions that still are unanswered. And I'd still like to know eventually why. That's all. I've heard you say that in many ways my investigation picked up where yours left off and that it re-energized your desire as we together collaborated to find out the whole truth. But really the most important thing for me, Steve, is that you and your wife and the Kibuishis learn the entire picture so you all know what happened to your loved ones. And I do want to say, first of all, thank you, Linda, and let me explain why. Once I saw that the police trusted you and, sh and you were able to see certain things, and once we started collaborating, I found out what true investigative reporting is. I had done episodes for Dateline, 2020, and 48 Hours. Being a novice I mean, who never had exposure to TV before, I assumed they had investigative reporters who would find out everything. And unfortunately, everything they did they got from the transcripts. There was really no investigation per se. And you can give a lesson to every one of those shows what true investigative reporting is. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you so much, Steve. And I will continue to ask questions until the whole truth about this case can be told. I know Detective Michael Cohen yearns for the same answers. Cases can be looked at again, and there are others. There are others involved. In this crime. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's no statute in homicide. So, you know, even though we have one guy in prison right now on death row, there's still plenty more room for others to follow. You have often said to me, Steve, that Dan Wozniak took away your best friend. He took away my, a large part of my life. Okay. And uh, they can't put him to death fast enough for me. But let's find out about Rachel. Next week, tune in for an exclusive interview with Dan Wozniak's defense attorney, Scott Sanders. He will reveal some of his earlier frustrations during the Wozniak trial. And one of those frustrations involves his inability to introduce Sam Hare's dark past when he himself was charged with murder. Scott Sanders will take us through his legal predictions of Rachel's upcoming trial proceedings. Hear what we might expect from the courtroom drama between Prosecutor Matt Murphy and Rachel Buffett's defense attorney, David Medina. If you enjoyed this episode of Sleuth, share it with a friend. And be sure to leave a rating or review. Follow Sleuth on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode.